Hi folks, it's Kian here. You find me on tour. I am here on location at a place called Spike Island, which is a tiny island in Cork Harbour, opposite the historic town of Cove, formerly Queenstown, a, a town famous for its associations with the Titanic. It is the last place that that ill-fated ship uh, sailed from before it had its accident. Uh, and why am I here on Spike Island? Because I'm finally, finally, finally getting around to covering something I've wanted to do for a long, long time. That is the life and career of one Percy Harrison Fawcett, a, a great explorer, an infamous mystic and spiritualist, uh, and the guy probably most famous for having disappeared into the Amazon in the 1920s looking for the supposed lost city of Zed. And in order to give us just a quick roundabout kind of... Uh, kind of a tour of this guy's life. Incidentally, you probably know him, most people probably know him from uh, the book and subsequent film, The Last City of Zed, uh, both of which are worth at least some of your time to differing degrees. But I'm going to read a short, um, short little bit from his life here, uh, which is from the beginning of Exploration Fawcett from the 1950s. This was a set of his own papers um, organized by his son, Brian Fawcett, who probably wrote this little kind of tidy up of his life. But it says, Colonel Percy Harrison Fawcett was born in 1867 in Devon, England. At the age of 19, he was given a commission in the Royal Artillery. He served in Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, for several years, where he met and married his wife, Nina. Later, he performed secret service work in North Africa. But finding himself bored with army life and learning the art of surveying, he hoped to land a more interesting job. Then, in 1906, came the offer to join the Royal Geographical Society, his ticket to adventure. It was summer 1925 when Colonel Percy Fawcett passed a final message to his wife. You need have no fear of any failure, he wrote, before setting off deeper into the Mato Grosso region of the Amazon jungle, on his quest to discover a fabled lost city of gold. He never found it. Instead, he vanished in baffling circumstances, leaving a mystery that has become one of the most enduring of the 20th century. So Fawcett is a really important figure in the history of kind of strange thought of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, he, he weaves in and out of fact and fiction. He's an incredibly important figure in the kind of uh, hardening of the various post-colonial or even colonial ideas about explorers, exploration, um, after sort of you know, Livingstone and, and Henry Morton Stanley, he's probably one of the biggest names in that particular business. Um, almost everybody who talks about him refers to him as some sort of proto-Indiana Jones. Myself, being a more old-school dude, I tend to harp on the connections between himself and Arthur Conan Doyle and The Lost World, all of which we're going to touch on in this episode. But what I've done is I've headed back to three different books about Fawcett. I'm going to study a different one um, in each episode, if indeed I do make it to three episodes, which I'm hoping to. Uh, and we're calling this series, of course, The Many Faces of Fawcett. So you find me here on Spike Island. Why is that? Because you may have noticed in that little rundown of the great explorer's life, it kind of skips over quite a few years, and in particular the years between 1903 and 1906, um, which most books about Fawcett don't really say anything about. They kind of jump over this time. It's like they, they reflect on it as being something of a boring, dull time that was kind of a bit of a waste before he got going on his more famous um, ex expeditions. That may indeed have been how Fawcett saw it himself, I'm not sure. There's not a whole lot written about this particular time, but he spent at least some of those years right here on Spike Island in Cork Harbour, because Spike Island was a military base and later a prison. 
So it is a place with, with a, a great and interesting history uh, and worth a look should you be visiting Cork for any other reason. Now, I reached out to John Crotty, who is the island manager here at Spike, and he w- was very, very, very good enough to give me some of his expertise um, uh, and some of his interest in Percy Fawcett as well. Like I said, this is something nobody else seems to cover. It's not something I've seen much of in any other books. So I asked a few questions um, about what Percy Fawcett might have been doing on the island here at this time. And John says, yes, sadly, there is little detail on the specifics of his time here on Spike. Uh, We are reliant on what we know about the island in general, being as it was the headquarters of the South Ireland coastal defence at this time and continued to be right through until 1938. So that's interesting as it retained a similar uh, position, you know, both before and after uh, Irish independence. So we reckon, according to John, that he arrived in about 1903 and was offered and accepted the commission to Bolivia, which is when he kind of sets off on his first important South American journeys, which is where most of the books pick up the story. And that was around May 1906. However, he had visited and been in conversation with the RGS, that of course is the Royal Geographical Society in London. He got in touch with them as early as 1900 and did some training with them and soon joined. So the offer of foreign research was not out of the blue. This was, of course, something Fawcett had been working towards for several years, as he does report in his own writings that he found his sort of downtime doing military jobs uh, between his exploring to be a little bit of a little bit of a dull spot for him. But I asked, is anything known about his kind of general duties around the base? What would somebody who already had a history and a reputation as an explorer and actually a bit of a spy, what would he have been doing here on Spike Island? So uh, Crotty says... That is wonderfully mysterious. He seemed overqualified for the role being carried out at the time because he was a major, he'd been made a major during his time here on Spike. Now, he was assigned to Spike by the War Office. This posting was as quiet as any he could have had in the British Empire. Unless you consider the Fenian or Republican activities happening on the mainland that seemed a constant plague to British interests here in Ireland. So he may have been sent there to aid with domestic rather than foreign matters, as the British thought. The Republican cause was not at its busiest in this period, considering it's unlikely he spent his day polishing guns, training artillery crews, and similar roles. Uh, you wonder what, you wonder whether he was carrying out roles relevant to his previous experience as a surveyor or as a spy. Uh, the island was generally quiet during his time. So great, huge thanks to John Crowdy, island manager of Spike Island, for that. Like I said, really, really interesting place to go and visit if you're interested in Irish history. Uh, or you just enjoy a good day out when you're around County Cork. Uh, and so I think I'm just getting a little bit breezy here, and uh, I've got to get the binoculars out and uh, spot some birds and things like that. Uh, I'll cut back to uh, base camp back at the Cabin in the Woods. You are, of course, listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. <laughs> Following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi folks, Kian here. Welcome back to Wide Atlantic Weird. And welcome back to me, back to the cabin. I haven't been here for a while. I've had a bit of a hiatus. And the cabin has kind of got some cobwebs in it. There's stuff. There's a book here that I stopped reading four months ago and uh, has ants crawling on it and there's just 
stuff everywhere, you know, petrified fairy wings and uh, small uh, miniature air-fixed George Adamski flying saucers and all sorts of bits. Oh, and and uh, of course, my Bigfoot cast as well, taking up a little bit of space here on the desk. But we're not here to talk about any of these things. We're here to talk about Percy Harrison Fawcett, of course, because I should say a little something, I suppose, about the hiatus. Nothing dramatic happened, just um, I suppose I was doing the show kind of flat it felt like flat out for I don't know two or three years and it was just something I couldn't not do you know when you're feeling that creative buzz and you just can't stop it coming out you almost can't control it it controls you and I I couldn't say no to the 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 feeling to go and make another show and then I suppose at some point like anything you get a bit burned out and I guess I felt I'd achieved most of what I wanted to I had you know found a voice for myself and how I talk about things I had found a way to research things to a degree which I felt was was useful Um, I was becoming experienced at finding an angle on things that was not just repeating what everybody else does uh, on some of these topics. And I, uh, you know, been tremendously lucky to meet a whole bunch of people who wanted to help out or contribute and add their their tremendous knowledge to what I'm doing. So, I don't know, sometimes, you know, it's time to just uh, take a break and and focus on other things in life. I I was starting a new job at the time, which takes up a lot of space in anyone's head, I think. Um, I've been doing a lot more outdoor stuff. Uh, I've been doing a lot more ecological stuff and uh, getting better at bird spotting and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, and uh, playing music again as well in, in, in public, of all things, if you can imagine. So a lot going on and um, you can't do everything. But I don't know, this month I just started reading again after several months of kind of not being able to sort of take in this sort of stuff. And it, I got a new book about Percy Fawcett and that caused me to dig out my old ones and we're going to look at them all I think across three episodes and this one is going to focus on probably the one people know the most about and the one that I had first which is David Grant's Lost City of Z or Z depending on where you're at Z is British and Z is American I actually had to look this up because I probably use them both indiscriminately and I probably will throughout the episodes just because I mean we get a lot of both cultural elements kind of interfering with our mindset. And while I think I probably would say Zed most of the time, I definitely learned the ABC song from like some Sesame Street or some, some US television where that you have to finish by saying XYZ. So, you know, I'm a bit mixed up with that. So uh, my understanding is Fawcett himself would probably have said Lost City of Zed. So that's the book. Um, it's not the first thing I ever heard about Fawcett. The first thing I ever heard about Fawcett was from oh, a book about monsters I had as a kid. There was a Twitter thread a few months ago where somebody was trying to think of some monster story. And I said, I oh, you know that story. I have that book. I, it was a picture of the story and a picture of the English uh, bird man or the owl man. And um, I can't think of the name of the book at the moment. And it's not directly in front of me. It'll come to me later. Editing Kean here. It didn't come to me. So I'll tell you. That it was the spine-chilling book of monsters by Rupert Matthews and Francis King. Of course, it was. But uh, there was a short bit in that story about like giant monster snakes, and this bit always stuck with me about Percy Fawcett being in the Amazon and you know shooting an anaconda, and then claiming that it was you know 120 feet long or something crazy like that, and nobody believed him when he came back home, and he was very angry about it. And I always remember that. So I, that was probably my earliest Fawcett memory. It's probably 10 or 11 years old. And then much, much later, when I was actually in the jungle, I had a job in Panama 10 or 11 years ago. And somebody, my boss, 
was an American who gave me a copy of this book or I borrowed it from her maybe I can't remember and I read it while I was in the jungle and um, it all, I've read it probably four or five times over the years I find some elements of it it's, it's just a bit of its time um, sort of travel books and history books and people who write those kind of half and half books were a bit of a thing at, at that time you know where there's one chapter where it's like oh here's what this historical figure did and then the next chapter is here's me trying to retrace his steps 100 years ago I have a similar book about somebody retracing the work of Henry Morton Stanley somewhere traveling across the Congo so that was a bit of a thing in sort of 2006 7 8 maybe anyway because I've been on hiatus I have some a few thank yous that are very long delayed so huge apologies to all the all the wonderful people who said nice things to me when I went on hiatus and even people especially people who sent me cool things so I have to say huge thanks to uh, David from the always tremendous Workers Cauldron podcast for sending me a book about the Hexham Heads an actual physical book sent by post how delicious so that came all the way from California yay and that's always exciting to get something from somewhere far away huge thanks to listener Paul Murphy for sending me a copy of the Colin and Janet Borge kind of cryptozoological classic alien animals from the UK so another physical tome in the post which is always exciting so huge thanks to Paul Paul's been a great supporter of the show and always has thoughtful insights and uh, has great depth of knowledge about um, all things 40 in himself so I do appreciate uh, Paul's input um, well, yeah so Cameron McCormick who's been on the show before talking about uh, Bernard Heuvelman's um, sent me some fun things over the last few months that are relevant to the show so I've long been looking for the article There Could Be Dinosaurs by Ivan T. Sanderson and finally Cameron got me a copy of that it might not be the original I think it was Saturday Post article from like 1949 or something but it's like one of the earliest kind of deliberate construction of what we might now call cryptozoology Ivan T. Sanderson uh, with this article was was hugely influential on Huvelmans who was then goes on to become sort of the father of cryptozoology to some people and I was very shocked by how many things that are in Huvelmans kind of primordial book on this uh, on the track of unknown animals from the from the mid 50s a lot of things in this book are taken from There Could Be Dinosaurs by Sanderson. I guess I shouldn't be surprised quite how many, but I was. And there's there's some stuff in this article that has gone like right on through the... the these stories were repeated over and over and over again across the annals of cryptozoology. And I was a little bit surprised to find that um, when Sanderson was traveling in, I think, Cameroon or somewhere in West Africa in 1932, um, he not only saw... A sort of a giant unknown winged creature which sometimes gets lumped in with the kind of thunderbird thing and although I think he makes it clear he thought it was some kind of enormous bat he also saw he also had a had a, an encounter with some sort of um, aquatic reptile which he talks about in the midst of an article about the Mokele and Bembe um, so I got the impression he was saying that's what he saw but it might it's not entirely clear so right a few things here so firstly obviously I should have said Kongamato, not Thunderbird. Both, of course, are supposed living pterosaur-type cryptids, but the Kongamato is the one associated with parts of Africa. Also, on this expedition alongside Ivan T. Sanderson was Gerald Russell, who 
has popped up in the podcast and other episodes because he went on to take part in not only the 1954 Daily Mail um, expedition looking for the Yeti, but he also went on the 1958 uh, Tom Slick expedition to find the Yeti as well. So a bit of a name in the world of cryptozoology. And lastly, though I felt like I was surprised to come across this Ivan T. Sanderson Mukele and Membe story, uh, it turns out it's actually in... Darren Nation's Hunting Monsters book, which I read years ago, so I should have known it, but I had clearly forgotten it. So there you go. Uh, uh, oh, and also Cameron sent me on Meeting Meeting with Monsters, which is an amazing picture book about creatures from Scandinavian or Icelandic mythology, uh, which is, is wonderfully illustrated as well. It's absolutely crazy. I want to say thanks to Margot DeMello for sending me a sample chapter from her upcoming book she's assistant professor of anthrozoology at carroll college in montana i had great fun reading that the, some of these things were a long time ago so apologies guys but i do like getting getting stuff to read that's that's relevant so um that that was that was fun to read that uh, and uh, yeah thanks to miles and trey from plastic plesiosaur podcast for having me on not too long ago as well we got to talk about ghosts rather than monsters on that episode and now being as i'm going to talk about percy fawcett i want to make a small connection so folks who like my show will know um monster talk monster talk probably one of the best uh, shows doing this sort of thing and they had a great episode about the hairy hands of dartmoor which is a, fa- a favorite and rather silly kind of ghost legend from england and it, they they do an amazing job always of digging out newspaper articles original sources for these stories and finding out where they came from and how they were shaped and one of the key articles that they found was from the spiritualist journal or the spiritualist magazine called light which people who are interested in the history of spiritualism will know was was published right through the late 19th century and and early 20th century in the 19 uh, yeah so as one of the sources on the show and because they're tremendously brilliant at finding tracking down you know, difficult to find original sources, um, was an article from the magazine Light, which was Spiritualist magazine, from the early 20s um, about the hairy hands of Devon and, and the idea being that this is one of the key, um, maybe early uh, sort of stories of spreading this particular legend. And it was written by somebody signing their name as PHF. Now, this made me think, of course, of Percy Harrison Fawcett, who went by the name PHF to family and friends, would sometimes sign his writings as PHF, his personal writings at least. And according to some of the books I have, according to Grand's book, he was writing for spiritualist magazines, including Light, at about this time. So I don't know for sure that it was him, but it's certainly a possibility. He's certainly a contender. It is the kind of thing he was doing. It is the kind of stuff he was interested in. And, um, you know, to what degree he was or wasn't a, a, a traditional spiritualist or theosophist or kind of all-round occult guy, I think we'll get into a little bit over the course of these episodes. What else do I want to talk about before we get stuck in properly? I want to say special thanks to friend of the show and friend of mine, Victoria Pearson, who was on our hellfire club road trip episode and we we have some plans tentatively for maybe future things we'll see but you may remember uh, i've long been trying to figure out the origin of a particular poltergeist story supposedly that happened in ireland where uh, a building was invaded by a poltergeist that um 
basically was like throwing hats around <laughs> i think and, and this comes from a, a 1970s osborne book the maple and myring um eric maple who's a, i think he was an ethics um so social uh, what's a folklorist who wrote this book um haunted houses ghosts and specters and i have a reprinting from the 90s and there's a story in there about this somewhere in ireland a place called killakee a house is invaded by ghostly poltergeist hats and there's this amazing drawing of like a, a bonnet and a stovepipe and a deer stalker and all these stereotypical hats flying in the window and for ages i've been trying to find out the origin of this story victoria has found it in a book called psychic phenomena in ireland by sheila saint Clair. and uh, we're, we're thinking that this might be one of the earliest um, versions of the story because she talks about uh, talking to people to whom this happened and indeed she does trace it to that Killikey house at the base of um, the hill where the Hellfire Club is. So that's potentially uh, a long-running mystery on the show solved but uh, we'll have more to talk about when uh, Victoria has read the book and maybe I'll get a chance to look at it too. So that's something to look out for in the future. Right, are we going to start talking about Percy Fawcett for real? We are. Right, first book for this episode, The Lost City of Zed by David Gran. I've got it here in front of me. Sadly, it's not the same copy I had in the jungle back in the day. It was first published in 2009. And I'm just going to say flat out that I think, because my theme for these episodes is that everybody has their own version of Fawcett. He means something different to different people and the three books that I'm going to talk about um, find different meanings in his life and his doings. To me, Gran tries to carve out a version of Fawcett who is kind of kind of ahead of his time and kind of progressive, which might be a strange word to use about this guy when you, when you hear some of his attitudes. Um, he was a contradictory fellow for sure in some of his beliefs. Gran wants to position him as somebody who was ahead of the game in terms of believing that there could have been a sophisticated society in the Amazon. So Gran's whole idea is that in Fawcett's day, in the 1910s and 20s, there was this belief that the Amazon was a, a an inhospitable place where, you know, society could never become particularly sophisticated because it was so hard just to exist there. And even though it looks beautiful and it has this amazing biological diversity it's actually an incredibly difficult place to live it's a dangerous place to live and it's a difficult place to get food and sustenance regularly and reliably so he makes out that this was the that the counterfeit counterfeit paradise was the general interpretation of the amazon and that percy fawcett was ahead of his time in saying well no maybe there was some great city there um, and this idea is pushed more so even in the film uh, the 2016 film and that yeah again both kind of trying to portray him as being forward-thinking um, and a, li- yeah, a little bit progressive they do play up um his the ways in which he was let's say more open-minded about like native south americans than uh, a lot of his contemporaries were he's far 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 from from the worst european explorer in that regard he part of his shtick was you know making sure that very often there are uh, expeditions didn't carry guns or had minimal guns he ensured that people didn't shoot when they first encountered groups of people um, and he had a lot of success with this and he made the, an effort to learn local languages and he seemed to have a respect for these groups of people that was not shared by a lot of other Europeans even European explorers at this particular time he 
Yeah, so that's that's one side of him, and that's the side that I think this book emphasizes. Also, it emphasizes him as a scientist, effectively. Um, it talks about his training with the RGS. It talks about things he was good at, um, it, the skills he had, the how the ideas he had um, might be reflected in things that we now know about the Amazon, which is the idea that probably there were much larger numbers of people living there than you know we used to believe, and a lot of this is tied up in the ideas that perhaps... When the Europeans first came to the Americas, you know, the disease that they brought was traveling ahead of them. And so you have some early accounts by like conquistadors and stuff talking about like large groups of people and, and cities uh, that were never found later. And so we thought that, oh, this is just kind of El Dorado mythmaking. Uh, and Gran makes a connection between uh, Fawcett's idea in this lost city of Zed and the c contemporary idea that probably there were much larger numbers of people uh, living in the jungles of South America uh, that were wiped out before you know most of the Europeans even got there to see them and again it's all tied up in these ideas of the Amazon is a place where you know people couldn't build things out of stone they built things out of wood and they the climate was such that you know everything rotted and nothing remained and and that this is one of the key differences and and so Today, when we look for evidence of more sophisticated groups, I'm using words like sophisticated with heavy <laughs> inverted commas, if you if you can't sense that, um, as, as a 1920s person would have seen it, uh, these more sophisticated societies today, we look for evidence of large population centers, um, you know, with, with uh, photography from satellites, looking at changes in the vegetation, looking at changes in the soil, which imply that there were large numbers of people maybe farming, maybe planting certain kinds of vegetation, and, and that we can see these changes now and, you know, make some kind of guesses as to uh, where uh, these societies might have lived that aren't there anymore. So that's the version of Fawcett that Gran likes to uh, push for he does talk about the spiritualist stuff but he kind of minimalizes it and um, because he wants to focus on gran as a as a scientist i think he does talk about the spiritualist stuff but he goes into far less depth with it um than the other books i'll talk about and he, he doesn't emphasize how Fawcett's spiritualist ideas were really really fundamentally key to his belief in this lost city you know he tries to keep those separate and that's even more clear in the film where they pay a little bit of lip service to uh, Fawcett's spiritualist ideas, for sure. But he constantly talks about the city as if it was um, a like just just a physical place, just like Machu Picchu, you know, just like Great Zimbabwe, which were, of course, you know, during his lifetime, these were great discoveries that you know kept the idea of the lost city as a concept in the public eye. Uh, and so, I think we'll start early on in the book. There's a wonderful. I didn't know this. <laughs> this is a, a wonderful moment where um, Grant talks about uh, Fawcett's last expedition. So he disappears. The reason he's infamous is because he disappears as a relatively older guy. He was 58 on his last expedition, 1925. He takes his own son, uh, Jack Fawcett, and his Jack Fawcett's friend, Rally Rimmel. They're both young fellows, uh, I think in their late teens or so. Uh, Fawcett is 58. And... They travel from North America down to South America on a ship with much hoopla, with much uh, attention from the press. And um, basically, he start, he, he's a pop culture icon for a period of time, and he shows up in various ways in newspapers and fiction and plays and stuff. And the funnest one for me is that Grant mentions, Evelyn Waugh's A Handful of Dust is believed to have been influenced by Fawcett's saga. Now, 
this is interesting to me because uh, I've long been fascinated by this book. It, there will be spoilers here if anyone likes Evelyn Waugh. Firstly, go read Vile Bodies first because it's funnier. But Handful of Dust is kind of like a, for most of its runtime, it's like a, I don't know, like a British comedy of manners, you know, and it's about the British class system. And uh, it is funny, but it's dry and dark, if I remember correctly. But right at the end, it goes crazy. And the main character just leaves England and goes on this, like, what turns out to be a wretched Amazon expedition. And everybody gets killed and he's the last one. And he finds when he's desperate and starving and, you know, wearing rags, he comes out of the jungle into this clearing and he finds that this guy has, you know, there's a guy on a ranch or a farm who's living out in the in the boonies. And this guy uh, is obsessed with Charles Dickens and he has all these books, but he can't read them. So he asks this poor, disheveled explorer to read the books for him and, and then things get weird. So I won't spoil any more than that. Weirdly, this story exists in two forms. One is the end of a handful, a handful of dust and has nothing to do with the rest of it. It feels out of place. And then it also exists on its own as a short story with the names of the characters changed, if I remember correctly. And it's called The Man Who Liked Dickens. <laughs> if you can track that down, I recommend it's I recommend a read. The Man Who Liked Dickens. I, I've been fascinated by that story for years. I never made the connection to Fawcett. So that's pretty cool. It does It does seem likely, or at least it shows that, you know, Amazon exploration was on the public mind because of the doings of Fawcett and others. Now, Fawcett had an incredibly complex life and he lived in lots of different places. I'm not even gonna try and tackle this chronologically. He went back and forth many times and he lived in some of these places more than once. But as a young fellow, as a young man, he was working with the military in uh, Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka. And while he was there, he got interested in exploration and um, history and archaeology. There's a story that he left his base one day to go into the jungle and found these ruins that had been swallowed up and that this might have been one of the ideas that, you know, gave him the seed of what would eventually become the idea of Zed. It's also where he kind of got into some what you might call quote-unquote Eastern mysticism. And don't forget that a lot of the occult doctrines of the day in the late, this is in the 1880s, kind of played on oh, the trope of the mysterious East. And of course, chief among uh, all of these thinkers is Helena Blavatsky. Now there's lip service paid to this in the film. There's a, a scene where he's in the trenches of the First World War and he goes to a seance with this woman who's explicitly uh, depicted as being Russian and she looks a bit like Blavatsky. The, the timeline is wrong, but, you know, I, I think th that's a nod to his real-life um, interest in in Blavatsky and, um, and theosophy. So while Fawcett is in Sri Lanka, he becomes interested in Buddhism, he becomes interested in theosophy, which takes some ideas from some Eastern philosophies. And uh, theosophy, of course, is the brainchild of uh, Blavatsky. So Grant says, Some theosophists, taking their heresy even further, became Buddhists and aligned themselves with religious leaders in India and Ceylon who opposed colonial rule. Among these theosophists was Fawcett's older brother, Edward, to whom Percy had always looked up. A hulking mountain climber who wore a gold monocle, Edward, who had been a child prodigy and published an epic poem at the age of 13, helped Blavatsky research and write her 1893 magnum opus, The Secret Doctrine. In 1890, he traveled to Ceylon, where Percy was stationed to take the Pansil, or Five Precepts of Buddhism. So firstly, like, the, the connection between sort of 
spiritualist new age thinking and you know mystical eastern thinking uh, you know what we now call new age goes way back and, and theosophy is absolutely full of this stuff in the 19th century but, but just imagine Fawcett is is stationed in Sri Lanka his own brother comes over to be like brought into the religion and you know in this ceremony and you've got all these ideas about the the Victorian you know stiff upper class dude who then you know goes native quote unquote and uh, embraces these ideas and you know you see this we've seen this before in characters like um uh, Richard Burton the explorer who did a lot of this sort of thing as well but his brother Foss's brother Edward I think it's Edward Douglas I think was his full name he was uh, also a writer and he wrote um all this tremendous like Jules Verneian science fiction uh, as we're going to see but look how close Fawcett is to this whole world. His own brother worked alongside Blavatsky and helped her to write her books. Oh, here we go. So um, Grant says, Fawcett later became f friendly with the novelist who most vividly conjured up this world of the Victorian adventurer savant, Sir Henry Ryder Haggard. In 1885, Haggard published King Solomon's Mines, which was advertised as the most amazing book ever written. Like many quest novels, it was patterned on folk tales and myths such as that of the Holy Grail. The hero is the iconic Alan Quatermain, a no-nonsense elephant hunter who searches for a hidden cache of diamonds in Africa with a map traced in blood. V.S. Pritchett noted that, whereas E.M. Forrester once spoke of the novelist sending down a bucket into the unconscious, Haggard installed a suction pump. He drained the whole reservoir of the public's secret desires. I love this. This is amazing. So one of the things that's fascinating about Fawcett is how he weaves in and out of the, the, both the real life and the fictitious world of the Explorer and the Lost City as a, as a meme, as a, as a trope. Like I said, he was living in a time when, when these things were showing up for real. You know, you had what was thought to be Troy in, I think, 1870, and you had Great Zimbabwe in 1871, I think. And then later on in his life, in 1911, you have Hiram Bingham finding Manchu Picchu. And in in and out of all of this, you have H.R. Haggard writing She and, and King Solomon's Mines, which are all stories about, you know, lost civilizations um, hidden in Africa. Now, one thing Gran doesn't want to get into too much. He, do, he, he mentions it, but it's not as much of a theme as I think it should be. And it's even less of a theme in the film. But this is that all of these stories come with this weird underbelly of like, well... If we go to these, you know, quote-unquote wild places and find, you know, sophisticated civilizations, uh, we're not going to assume that they were built by the locals. We're going to assume that they were built by, you know, take your pick, you know, a, a lost Roman legion or the, you know, the ancient Celts or the, um, you know, the wandering tribes of Israel. Basically, you know, more or less Caucasian people is... is a common trope with all this stuff that's how great zimbabwe was interpreted for a very very long time and that's how that's how hr haggard talks about a lot of his stories um it's mentioned or at least it's it's hinted at in king solomon's minds and it's more overt in she but in both cases you have a lost civilization in africa where you have these kind of local tribes but they're living amongst the ruins of an, a more ancient society who are implied to have come from somewhere else and in, in some cases, it's quite clear, are implied to be sort of Mediterranean or European in some way. And, you know, this this is thinking that had extremely bad uh, repercussions in real life. And 
it's bad stuff. I kind of breeze past it a bit when I read this Victorian literature because I just know that that's the way these people were thinking. Where it does annoy me is when it shows up in like swords and sword and planet stuff like Edgar Rice Burroughs and some of his books. You have the same stuff going on where, you know, John Carter goes to Mars and meets these advanced civilizations or, or these, you know, these interplanetary civilizations and they're living in these wonderful civ uh, buildings and structures and palaces. But, you know, again, they're like squatting amongst the ruins of some older, greater civilization in, in a few cases, which is explicitly shown to be, you know, pale and blonde and blue eyed and what have you. Oh, and it just annoys me in that circumstance because, you know, you're supposed to be exercising your imagination here. This is not supposed to be your own ideas about what you think happened in history. You know, just even even in absurd science fiction, you can't let go of this stuff. That's that's when it bothers me. Anyway, I'm going to go back to Grant for a moment. He says, Fawcett did not have to look so far to see his desires spilled on the page. After abandoning theosophy, Fawcett's older brother, Edward, remade himself into a popular adventure novelist who for a time was hailed as the English answer to Jules Verne. In 1894 he published Swallowed by an Earthquake which tells the story of a group of friends who are plunged into a subterranean world where they discover dinosaurs and a tribe of wild man that eats men. Haven't read this one yet folks it's on my to-do list but a few ideas there that show up later on in The Lost World in, in 1912 this is quite a few years before that but again look at the tropes Lost World, Secret Place, um, Underground World, Dinosaurs, and of course, you know, Missing Link type cavemen. People were obsessed with with that, you know. The Darwinism was still doing a number on people's subconscious, and, and the, the idea of the ape man is all over this kind of Lost World literature, and it will continue to be all throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s. It was Edward's next novel, however, that most acutely reflected his younger brother's private fantasies and in many ways chillingly foretold Percy's future. Called A Secret of the Desert and published in 1895, the novel appeared with a blood-red cover that was engraved with a picture of an explorer wearing a pith helmet dangling from a rope over a palace wall. The tale centres on an amateur cartographer and archaeologist named Arthur Manners, the very personification of the Victorian sensibility. It is an amazing cover, well worth looking up. Uh, the, the, and this story is about, you know, a, a trip into the Arabian desert looking for uh, a lost oasis and the uh, manners uh, disappears and then this expedition has to be sent after him to rescue him. Uh, so there's, and there's some kind of Jules Vernean type crazy uh, vehicles that they use to do the job. But that aside, quite a few elements here actually happened to Fawcett later in his career. He did go look missing, looking for a lost city, and all expeditions went after him. So it's just incredible how he goes in and out of real life and fiction. And I, I think the border between those is very thin. And, and these ideas persist, you know, even today, once in a while, you get these articles, you know, in not amazing newspapers, uh, slightly misinterpreting stuff that archaeologists are doing and saying, oh, we, you know, we found this lost city. Um, I remember a story from several years ago where they were saying that some, some kid had found a lost city using Google Earth. And um, the whole concept of, of quote-unquote lost cities is one that my, my understanding is archaeologists uh, don't see things that way. They wouldn't, they wouldn't describe anything really in that manner. Anyway, Fawcett goes on lots of different expeditions to the Amazon. And his first important one is 1906. That's when the RGS sends him 
to Bolivia to map the border between uh, Bolivia and Brazil because uh, nobody can agree on where it is because it's in the middle of uh, this uninhabited jungle and you know there's the chance of war and, and there's fighting over this so they want a, a neutral third party to go and check it out so somebody British seems to be appropriate. Now I've, I'm dipping into Exploration Fawcett just for a moment because that's that's the book of Fawcett's own writings and that's because there's a lovely map at the front of it which shows all of his expeditions and just so you know what we're talking about here he went on one in 1906 he went again in 1907 again in 1910 he went on another one in 1911 he went on another one in 1913 uh, two in 1913 in fact he went on one in a very short disastrous one in 1921 and then his final mission where he disappeared was 1925 i am not going to try to pinpoint every story to what year it was or which expedition it was and not all of the books do that either and, and a lot of the same personnel were involved in some of these um so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna pick and choose bits from the book to talk about but on one of these expeditions uh, gran writes the explorers paddled past the ricardo franco hills eerie sandstone plateaus that rose three thousand feet Time and the foot of man had not touched these summits, Fawcett wrote. They stood like a lost world, forested to their tops, and the imagination could picture the last vestiges of an age long vanished. Conan Doyle reportedly based the setting of The Lost World, at least partly on these tablelands. And so, as is well often stated, uh, Fawcett had very close connections not only to H.R. Haggard, but also to Arthur Conan Doyle, both of them crucial to the development of the lost race and then the lost world novels as 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 genres or subgenres so it's often mentioned that these uh, geological oddities that Fawcett is describing were the inspiration for Conan Doyle's lost world being this kind of flat top plateau and um, he saw him he saw Fawcett uh, speaking publicly after coming back from an expedition and heard about this Fawcett using the phrase literally they stood like a lost world and the imagination could picture you know an age long vanished i suspect that's not from the time i suspect that's from him writing later after the publication of the book but i could be wrong i, I suspect this was written post 1912 but uh, maybe i'll know more when i read more of exploration Fawcett. i'm only in the middle of it so i think that's pretty a pretty good connection there so yeah again these were these were two guys who knew each other they wrote to one another um, and Fawcett later explicit makes another explicit connection between the Lost City of Zed and Arthur Conan Doyle's fictional plateau. So this again, once again, the idea that you go out and you find the lost place or lost city is bouncing back and forth between real life and fiction. We get another little bit of information here about Fawcett's brother Edward, uh, which, which is just that another one of his books is called Hartman the Anarchist or The Doom of the Great City. Published in 1893, the cult science fiction novel details how an underground cell of anarchists invented an aeroplane prototype christened the Attila, and in a scene that presaged the Blitz of World War II, used it to bomb London. Another one on the to-read list, clearly. So, by 1911, he's back from one of his expeditions, and he's giving a lecture at the Royal Geographical Society, and he's referred to, so he's kind of advertised as the Livingston of the Amazon. Johnny goes to show kind of how important, you know, Stanley Livingstone and Henry Morton Stanley still were in the, you know, early 20th century imagination. They were the personification of 
explorers and everyone else would still be compared to them and you know africa kind of was the hotspot for this kind of exploring malarkey in in fiction and in, in the imagination you know at the end of the 19th century but at this point you know most of that had been mapped and, and colonized and whatnot so you know people's eyes went elsewhere and this is a period of course when you know polar exploration is incredibly important and this is they, they, they show this quite well in the film, actually, but Fawcett did have this kind of bitterness as to, you know, why are these polar expeditions getting all this attention and all this money? Like, there's nothing there. They're just these, like, they're, they're barren, you know? Why are... And for, a lot, for some of his career, I mean, he had high points, but he wasn't... He wasn't getting the kind of attention that someone like Shackleton was. I'd argue he never did. And, and interestingly, in terms of class structure here, because we have to go there, Fawcett was born to a family that had had money but was kind of going on hard times his own father i think was a little bit higher up class wise but had drank away a lot of his fortune and Fawcett really was only making the money that he did from his military uh, roles and then later the money he got from the rgs but he spent vast portions of his life in poverty moving his family around the world from place to place they they lived in Sri Lanka and they lived in England and they lived in Jamaica and they lived in California and I'm not going to try and keep all that straight chronologically but they were at times living in houses that had no water no electricity no nothing you know so um he he wasn't he was kind of a well-connected guy but he wasn't he didn't seem to know how to play the system to its advantage and increasingly as his ideas got weirder we'll find that, you know, the willingness of connected people from, for example, the RGS to support him isn't always there. Now, both the book and the film make uh, quite, uh, they spend quite a lot of time on this 1911 expedition where Fawcett travels with a guy by the name of James Murray. And I, I think it's it, the point is to make that explicit difference between the polar exploration that, you know, the Western world is, is fascinated by at this time uh, and the amazonian exploration which the book kind of tries to portray as maybe a little bit second tier in the public's interest gran writes it seemed uh, like the perfect match james murray the great polar scientist and Fawcett, the great amazon explorer uh, so they it's arranged for them to go together on his next expedition james murray is better connected and more famous because he served under shackleton uh, gran makes a point though that uh, he was not he didn't undergo like some of the really insane hardships that, you know, were very famous about Shackleton's expeditions. Um, and he mostly stayed at base camp looking after things there. But Shackleton was a superhero in, in you know, Edwardian Britain. And this guy had a lot of clout and kind of got himself onto uh, Fawcett's expedition. I like this where Gran writes, The qualifications for a great polar explorer and for an Amazon one are not necessarily the same. Indeed, the two forms of exploration are, in many ways, the antithesis of each other. A polar explorer has to endure temperatures of nearly 100 degrees below zero, and the same terrors over and over, frostbite, crevices in the ice, and scurvy. He looks out and sees snow and ice, snow and ice, and unrelenting bleakness. The psychological horror is in knowing that this landscape will never change, and the challenge is to endure, like a prisoner in solitary confinement, sensory deprivation. By contrast, an Amazon explorer immersed in a cauldron of heat has his senses constantly assaulted. In place of ice, there is rain, and everywhere an explorer steps, some new danger lurks. A malarial mosquito, 
A spear, a snake, a spider, a piranha. The mind has to deal with the terror of constant siege. Now, I've talked on the show before about the, the fascination with the polar explorers, and I think it's having another comeback in recent years with the, the kind of success of the the terror TV show and all that stuff. And um, there's a whole community around that online now with this obsession with the polar explorers. It's, there's no denying that they were huge. They were bigger than the likes of Fawcett, I think, at the time. And I wonder why that is. Like, there's something... There is far less to see and to talk about and to do in the, you know, if you're a biologist, if you're a, you know, in, in the in the polls, they're just less busy environments. And yet there's something about that bleakness. There's something about that repetitiveness. There's something pure about the, the cold and the whiteness and the blankness that I think people are fascinated by. Fawcett writes, or, or Gran writes, Fawcett had long been convinced that the Amazon was more grueling and of greater scientific import, botanically, zoologically, geographically, and anthropologically, than what he dismissed as the exploration of, quote, barren regions of eternal ice. And he resented the hold that polar explorers had on the public's imagination and the extraordinary funding they received. Murray, in turn, seemed certain that his journey with Shackleton, a journey more heralded than any Fawcett had undertaken, had elevated him above the man in charge of his latest expedition. So the expedition is a disaster... Murray and Fawcett don't get on. Murray has a hard time in the Amazon and is stealing supplies and eating other people's food and tries to kind of mutiny on Fawcett several times. And the other man on the expedition is a fellow by the name of Coston. I think it's Henry Coston. And he's he's played in the film by uh, future Batman Robert Pattinson, who who is pretty 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 good in uh, in the the lighthouse, which is a, a favorite of mine. Anyway. That's by the by. So, Costin famously says, when asked to go on another expedition after this, while talking about the jungle, he says, it's hell all right, but one kind of likes it. Which reminds me of, um, what was that guy's name? And Adrian Carton de Weert, who was, uh, I think he was Belgian. He was a soldier who fought for the British army in all of these kind of of turn-of-the-century campaigns and famously said uh, about the First World War that... uh, you know, I, I quite liked it. <laughs> he was a lunatic, I think. So Murray, they basically have to leave him behind in the jungle. They give him some supplies and set him, you know, towards a nearby uh, settlement so that he has a chance of surviving. Um, and they kind of never expect to see him again. They think he's probably going to die, but he survives and comes back and goes on another expedition to the poles later. So Gran writes... Murray, for his part, had had enough of the tropics. He longed for the similar, the familiar bleakness of ice and snow, and in June 1913, joined a Canadian scientific expedition to the Arctic. Six weeks later, the ship he was on, the Carluck, became embedded in the ice and eventually had to be abandoned. This time, Murray helped to lead a mutiny against the captain, and with a breakaway faction, he escaped with sleds across the barren snow. The captain was able to rescue his party, but Murray and his party, however, were never seen again. I've had a little break, which, thanks to the magic of editing, hopefully you will know nothing about. Um, But this is a long and involved episode. This whole series might turn out to be quite an endeavour, maybe one to match uh, the mission of 
faucet himself. But let's take a little moment to tell you about this episode's beer, because I didn't do it at the beginning. I'm drinking a beer from West Cork Brewing Company. This is called Beacon of Hops. It's an American Pale Ale, 4.1%. And on the side of the bottle, it says... Welcome to Ireland's most southerly brewery, located in picturesque Baltimore on the shores of the Atlantic. West Cork Brewing Company hand brews each brew using our own well water and the most traditional methods. And yeah, so this was given to me by a publican uh, at the end of a gig, which uh, in Cork City, I played double bass in some outfits and... uh, I have to drive in and out of the city for that, so sometimes the publicans give me a couple of nice brews to take home, and they've learned at this point that I have an interest in fine pale ales. Okay, let's return to our boy Fawcett. So in in Grant's book, he introduces the idea of this last city of Zed by saying that there's no single moment of epiphany, there's no one thing that happens to Fawcett. He says the idea comes to him slowly over time, um, starting with, you know, his days in, in Sri Lanka, where he has learned that it is possible for a great kingdom to seclude itself in the jungle and um, become buried by creeping vines and roots. But Fawcett starts to transfer this idea to the Amazon over many years and lots of different ideas. He starts hearing stories from locals and tribes about you know, great towns and buildings that are bigger than the ones that he sees now. He starts finding in a couple of places um, pottery, which he thinks is as sophisticated as the pottery of anywhere else in, you know, Europe or Asia or anything like that. And there's a good quote here from Gran, which kind of explains the the sort of thinking amongst uh, Western specialists in, in this area at the time. It says, by the early 20th century, the then popular diffusionist school of anthropologists maintained that if a sophisticated ancient civilization ever did exist in South America, its origins were either Western or Near Eastern, in the lost tribes of Israel, for example, or in seafaring Phoenicians. And this is important. So diffusionist meaning, of course, this idea that, um, you know, complex things in society tend not to spring up independently. Therefore, you know, people used to look for single origins for them. So if you have a civilization in South America, it probably didn't pop up independently of those in, you know, the Middle East or uh, the Mediterranean. It must have come from there. And then you get hyperdiffusionism saying that, oh, well, obviously all civilization comes from some original source and then you get into the weird stuff because very often it's Atlantis or some other sort of northern or you know central Atlantean sort of mythical island and it goes off in lots of different directions many of them um, rather dodgy racially uh, uh, unfortunately and and then we get to some of this stuff I've not been looking forward to so you know to be fair we have to show Fawcett in his least flattering light here Gran writes, Fawcett was deeply influenced by such ideas. His writings are rife with images of the Indians as jolly children and ape-like savages. When he first saw an Indian cry, he expressed befuddlement, sure that physiologically Indians had to be stoic. He struggled to reconcile what he observed with everything he had been taught. You know, remember, he was trained to be an explorer by the RGS and he was taught all of this stuff, which was, you know, part of the establishment view. Uh, and his conclusions were filled with convolutions and contradictions. So he gives some examples here of how, 
you know, he was taught all of this stuff about the, the nature of the different races and what to, in the world and what to expect from them and what the differences are. And then he didn't always see that playing out in front of him when he went into, into the field. Editing key in here. The word Indian is used a lot in this book. Uh, at, at first, it's because Gran is quoting older stuff from the 1920s, but he does actually use it himself quite a bit. I know some groups of people are fine with this, others are not. It definitely feels at least a bit dated to me and um, just one of the things that shows how much things have changed even since this book was written. And he says um, he nearly always describes the Indians whom he met as being civilized and often far more so than Europeans. My experience, this is a quote from Fawcett himself, my experience is that few of these savages are naturally bad unless contact with savages from the outside world has made them so. So interesting double use of, of, of the word savage there. Um, I like this because it shows his knowledge of the larger political situation in the Amazon at this time. He is visiting there during the years of the rubber boom, which is, is a really a terrible time. And kind of similar things are happening there to what was being described in the Congo, you know, under King Leopold at about the same time. And you have you know, these these large companies coming in to remote places and basically just taking people as pretty much slaves and destroying entire communities so that they have people to work um, on these kind of sugar plant or rubber plantations, I should say. And it's true that explorers like Fawcett were going into these remote places where the locals were extremely hostile and were they were very efficient at killing you when you invaded their territory because they they had been they had had such terrible things done to them by outsiders before and you know by by rights they were extremely extremely aware that you know Europeans coming into their places usually meant bad things um and Fawcett being aware of this is is a distinct improvement over a lot of the writings of other explorers and and people who dealt with this in fiction as well from about the same period so his understanding that their violence has it was necessary because of the violence done to them um helps me to have a little bit more respect for him i think costin summing up fawcett's relationship with the natives of the amazon said simply he understood them better than anyone so there is a lot of evidence that he was genuinely interested in these people um uh, he had a policy of non-violence towards them and as i said earlier it, it served him very well and i i think some of that I don't know if respect is quite the word, but maybe it is. Um, some of the respect that he had for them came through and he managed to, you know, engage with them on a human-to-human -human level. And he, in some ways, at least, he was able to shed the sort of preconceptions of his, of his time. Grant says, Yet Fawcett could never find his way out of what the historian Dane Kennedy has called the mental maze of race. When Fawcett detected a highly sophisticated tribe... He frequently tried to find racial markers, more whiteness, for example, that might reconcile the notion of an advanced Indian society with his Victorian beliefs and attitudes. And then he talks about how some groups of people in the Amazon are a robust and fair people who must have a civilized origin. And so all of that stuff we said earlier about you know the, the these ideas in adventure fiction that when you find a you know a lost city somewhere outside of europe it must mean that you know mediterraneans or, or white people of some sort went there and built it and he has absorbed this 
And this was his interpretation of the city of Zed. And so Grant mentions it here, uh, in this one chapter at least, and I think it's a, it's a more important part of what how Fawcett conceived Zed than maybe cer- maybe the book and certainly the film wants to spend time too much time on anyway. Because he wasn't really somebody who thought that the people he was meeting living in the Amazon were capable of building such a thing. He seems to have believed that like somebody came from the outside and did this. Now maybe I'll find out more about this when I as I make my way through Exploration Fawcett, which will probably be the next episode. But a lot of my ideas about this come from a great book called The Lost White Tribe by Michael Robinson, who talks about this this idea, this obsession amongst Western explorers at this time that, you know, there must be groups of people who, in, in these wild places, who were white originally, and that, that's where, you know, these germs of civilization came from. It's, it's Victorian diffusionism. And Michael Robson has a podcast called, I think it's called Time to Eat the Dogs, or Now We Eat the Dogs, which is worth, worth a listen, and it's about, uh, it's about explorers and the age of exploration. Uh, Many of these legends undoubtedly had their origins in the existence of tribes with markedly lighter skin. And that that, that seems to be the case very often from Africa to Central America to South America, which is that these stories would begin because there was, you know, you have all different kinds of people living in in these continents. Some of them are going to be lighter than others. And, you know, occasionally Europeans were surprised to find a group of people who maybe weren't as dark as they expected, and then the story gets out of hand. Or in other cases, you have, um, you know, explorers coming across albino people amongst a group of locals, and they get completely get the wrong impression on this because they desperately wanted to believe in this notion of, of there being white people in these places, probably because it satisfied their own ideas about supremacy in the past and also justifying their own sort of colonial or pseudo-colonial intentions at the time. Now, to carry on with Gran, he says, In Fawcett's day, the white Indian question, as it was called, gave credence to the diffusionist theory that uh, Phoenicians, (laughs) I always say this wrong, or some other Westerners, such as Atlanteans or Israelites, look how this slides in and out of like real groups of people from history and out-and-out fiction, and they're just all mashed together in these ideas. How these groups of people have migrated into the jungle thousands of years earlier. Fawcett was initially skeptical of the existence of white Indians, calling the evidence weak, but over time they seemed to give him a way out of his personal mental maze of race. If the Indians had descended from Western civilization, there could be no doubt that they could build a complex society. Fawcett could never take the final leap of a modern anthropologist and accept that complex civilizations were capable of springing up independently of each other. As a result, while some anthropologists and historians today consider Fawcett enlightened for his era, others, like John Hemming, depict him as a Nietzschean explorer who spouted eugenic gibberish. In truth, he was both. I think I'm going to have to agree with that. Uh, Now, John Hemming uh, has written probably the most damning interpretation of Fawcett's career. He thinks Fawcett was was a was a fool and, uh, you know, a bad scientist and that he made no important discoveries, really. Uh, we will get to John Hemming's article uh, about and his writings about Fawcett at some point. As I say, every man has his Fawcett. And uh, the point of this podcast is not necessarily to to bash anyone or criticize anyone's take, just merely to show that 
we all see a particular we all see our own take on something when we look into it so one of the key pieces of evidence which convinces percy that there is a lost city in the jungle is a document he finds of um, a group of conquistador types in the year 1753 now gran goes to take a look at this himself it's the, the document still exists in rio de janeiro um interesting grant does some good like he meets like descendants of Fawcett, and he goes to the places Fawcett went and he tracks down the evidence that Fawcett would have used himself so a lot of a lot of first-hand work here so um it talks about how this was written by a portuguese bandeirante or soldier of fortune it talks about how his his group were in the jungle for i think 10 years and they find a an hitherto unknown chain of mountains and they climb up into the mountains and they see what looks like an ancient city. And when they go down into the city, they find uh, stone archways, statues, roads and temples. And the quote is, The ruins well showed the size and grandeur which must have been there, and how populous and opulent it had been in the age when it flourished. Fawcett himself finds this document while he's looking in the National Library of Brazil in Rio de Janeiro. But after he finds it, it's kind of stuck away in bureaucratic archives and Fawcett writes that um he thinks because Brazil is such a catholic country that they just their their bigotry uh in their worldview tells them that it's not possible to imagine that there could be an ancient civilization from somewhere else or from the locals whichever in the amazon now in the film this is played out as slightly differently he he just says like he doesn't specify catholicism he just says like church authorities uh, so we're supposed to interpret it as being that, you know, he believes that he's kind of progressive because he believes that uh, people in South America could indeed have built such a thing. Um, whereas I interpret it slightly differently because, and we'll get to this, uh, what isn't in the book I've got here, but is in Exploration Fawcett, is um, his original writings about this document, where he specifically specifies that he thinks that these guys found statues that are kind of Grecian looking or Roman looking and they they see these kind of noble uh, these noble people with laurel wreaths on their head and all of this distinctively kind of Mediterranean cultural bits and pieces so I, I think he's going a lot more diffusionist than perhaps um, is in is the impression given in this book. So Fawcett hopes to go back into the jungle for another expedition to find the Lost City at this time were interrupted by the First World War. And he was he was right at, at the kind of some of the most famous bits of this. So he fought at the Battle of the Somme. He was fairly high up and commanded like groups of I think 900 men or so. And he was commended for his bravery and for uh, being basically pretty good at his job in the military. But just like many other folks who who saw that terrible carnage, he, he emerged from it rather changed. And um, like kind of like the way the story of Arthur Conan Doyle sometimes gets told, where the emphasis is on how they became, they, how they turned to spiritualism after the war, when I think in both cases there's some evidence that they were definitely interested far earlier than this, it, it is fair that um, they both sought horrors and suffered losses during that time that led them to perhaps delve more thoroughly into into those waters. F Fawcett, for example, sought solace in 
spiritualism and occult rituals that offered a way to communicate with missing loved ones is how uh, David Gran puts it. And he talks about how when Fawcett was younger, his interest in occult things had been kind of just more like general youthful rebellion, but now he was going on to take it more seriously and how his uh, his interest in the occult was no longer kind of kept down to earth by his, his scientific training, his RGS training. He was now taking on board the thinkings of people like Madame Blavatsky. Um, as we've read, he had certainly familial connections with her um, far earlier than this, but uh, he his writings do show that he had a, a huge interest in spiritualism, as many did following the First World War. Gran writes, He imbibed Madame Blavatsky's most out- outlandish teachings about hyperboreans and astral bodies and lords of the dark face and keys to unlocking the universe, the other world seemingly more tantalising than the present one. And then he notes, in The Land of Mist, Conan Doyle's 1926 sequel to The Lost World, John Roxton, the character said to be partly based on Fawcett, embraces spiritualism and investigates the existence of ghosts. Now, when I was younger, I got a copy of The Land of Mist and I was horrified by it because... I, I was really annoyed. I, I took massive umbrage at Doyle taking my favourite characters from The Lost World, my favourite novel, and repositioning them into this, like, polemic for spiritualism. And he does this ridiculous thing where he's, he says, OK, guys, so, you know, Professor Challenger and Lord John Roxton and the other lads, they're real, right? And, you know, the fictional world of these characters is real. Oh, but The Lost World never happened. That was fiction. So it's like, no, you're taking my favourite characters, you're pretending that my favorite story (laughs) isn't real and then you resurrect them sort of just so that they can go on adventures hunting for ghosts and becoming spiritualists and it honestly it is an interesting novel in and of itself worth your time if you're interested in that time or or the spiritualism in the 1920s there's and there's a, a standout chapter where um i think malone edward malone the journalist and John Roxton go uh, spend a night in a haunted house which is genuinely spooky and creepy I really enjoyed that one um worth saying that that character Lord John Roxton yes he is partly based on Fawcett because he's this kind of you know gentleman British explorer and he also spent time in South America you know coming up against the rubber barons that's all part of it too interesting how like both the real-life character Fawcett, you know, starts out as an explorer and becomes a diehard spiritualist. Same thing happens to the fictional character, John Roxton. You know, he's a he's regular adventurer in The Lost World, and then in The Land of Mist, he becomes a convert to spiritualism because Doyle wants him to be. But he's also based on uh, the Irish patriot Roger Casement, for also a very interesting character from both this time and hugely important in um, kind of exposing the crimes of King Leopold in the Congo. And then also went to South America and wrote about the horrors of the robber boom there as well. So all these folks were were kind of connected in, in certain ways. Uh, Grant goes on to say, there was a rumor among some officers, this is during the war, that Fawcett used a Ouija board, a popular tool of mediums, to help make tactical decisions on the battlefield. Fawcett would then ask the Ouija board in a loud voice if this was a confirmed location of the enemy's position, and if the miserable board skidded over in the right direction, not merely would he include it in his list of confirmed locations, but often order 20 rounds of 9.2 howitzer to be fired at the place. And that's from an unpublished memoir. So, you know, not somebody kind of writing this for sensationalism or to, you know, get a get a rise out of anybody. 
Um, Grant goes on to say that like during the war, Fawcett seems to have become more and more consumed with the idea of Zed as this you know escape from the horrors of reality. If once I can get out of this muddy trench and back in the jungle, I, I will find this wonderful gleaming place which only seemed more and more perfect as the horror around him grew and i suppose when we're in times of horror ourselves our need to believe in something pure becomes more important a glittering place seemingly immune to the rottenness of western civilization or as he told conan doyle something of the lost world really did exist now this time it's definitely post 1912 and he's definitely using that quote very deliberately Finally, after the war, Fawcett has a brief and um, ill-fated attempt to get back into the jungle again in 1921. Interestingly, somebody who reaches out to him and wants to be on his expedition is none other than Colonel T.E. Lawrence, uh, better known, of course, as Lawrence of Arabia. But Fawcett has learned his lesson from his misadventures with James Murray. And he realizes that uh, just because you are good at exploring the Arctic or the desert doesn't mean that you're cut out for the amazon also worth noting he literally couldn't pay for the wages of someone of the sort of celebrity of lawrence and this is when Fawcett is sliding into his he ends up going on that expedition by himself by the way and um, this is when Fawcett is sliding into kind of destitution and he's losing the support that he once had in the scientific worlds um, partly this is because the scientific world is changing. The day of the RGS-trained all-around explorer are kind of gone. The day when, you know, somebody could be a traveler and an ethnographer and a scientist and a zoologist and all these other ologists, like, in one person. Those days are kind of over, and those separate things are now becoming, you know, specializations. And uh, people like Fawcett are increasingly being seen as a kind of a Victorian throwback. That's one reason why he's losing the connections he once had but also he's coming up with some pretty weird ideas he keeps talking about um how the lost city of zed is connected to atlantis and um you know uh, the, the 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 white mystical lodges of theosophy and, and stuff like this grand writes he complained about the money wasted on those useless antarctic expeditions get in there Fawcett. about the men of science who uh, had in their day poo-pooed the existence of the americas and later of pompeii and of troy and he's getting into a bit of contrarianism here, a bit of anti-elitism here, a bit of the, the usual stuff that we hear from uh, alt-history guys, that we hear from some cryptozoologists. They kind of, uh, those idiots, those fools, they, don't, they won't listen to me. I'm the one who knows. He increasingly surrounded himself, this is a quote, with spiritualists who not only confirmed but embroidered on his own vision of Zed. Fawcett published essays in journals such as the Occult Review, in which he spoke of his spiritual quest. Uh, and he wrote in the spiritualist magazine Light as well. So there, we've come, we've come back to that. I'm purposely picking the bits out of the book where David Grant talks about um, Fawcett's spiritual leanings because that's what I'm most interested in. I did say at the beginning that I, I think he downplays it a little bit. I'm probably not making that clear because I'm deliberately picking those bits out, but they are by far in the minority. He also structures his book such that a lot of this stuff comes kind of towards the second half so he spent half the book building Fawcett up as a, a tremendous explorer and then in the second half kind of making out like he only later in life became in, in, interested in these strange ideas and now we get to something very important that is showing up quite late in the book um, when in fact the writer could have dropped this in much earlier and I think it's part of his structuring of putting all the spooky stuff 
kind of in the second half. He says, At one point, his friend Ryder Haggard told Fawcett that he had something important he wanted to give the explorer. It was a stone idol, about ten inches tall, with almond-shaped eyes and hieroglyphics carved on its chest. Haggard, who had kept it by his desk while writing the 1919 book When the World Shook, uh, haven't read it, to be honest. Haggard books from that period are, aren't great, as I've, uh, in my opinion. Uh, said that he had received the statue from someone in Brazil who believed it came from the Indians in the interior. Fawcett took the idol with him and had it examined by several museum experts. Most suspected it was fake, but Fawcett, in his desperation, even showed it to a psychic and concluded that it might be a relic of Zed. So... We could, have been, we could have come across this a long time ago when we first talked about the friendship between these two men, but instead it's, it's coming late in the book because I think, again, it, we're trying to emphasize the spooky stuff came later, or at least the interpretation of his, his ideas as being, you know, metaphysical comes later. Also, we're leaving out the fact that I know this from Exploration Fawcett, what I've read of it so far, um, I know that Haggard's a psychic who he, who he took this idol to and this idol really kind of sums up the it's like a, it's like a weird core of all his mystical beliefs you know it came from somewhere in Brazil it's probably from the lost city of Zed and it has memories somehow stored within it of the lost city of Atlantis and that's what the the psychic tells him so you know the the, the waters run deep here and eventually Fawcett gets funding by a man named George Lynch, one-time member of the RGS. So he, this guy is well-connected and um, has money, but he's also into publicity and newspapers and stuff. So he, he meets Fawcett, thinks, this guy's great, he has this great idea, you know, the newspaper's going to love it. So he bankrolls Fawcett's, what, what becomes eventually Fawcett's final 1925 expedition with his son, Jack Fawcett, and Jack Fawcett's friend, Raleigh Rimmel. And this this is barely touched on in the book, but Fawcett had some weird ideas about his son, and I think we're going to get into this later, in, later in the series at least. Um, we, we get a mention that uh, Fawcett sometimes says about Jack, oh, I think he's destined for great things, I think he's destined to be a leader of men, I think he has some kind of important spiritual destiny, he's a bit vague, but I happen to know... Um, from other writings that we'll get to eventually that Fawcett had far more in intense and bizarre and concrete um, beliefs about Jack's ultimate uh, spiritual future, all of which is tied into his conception of what the Lost City actually might have been. And so they go off on their expedition. They are never heard of again. And this this is the beginning of Fawcett's legend in the you know, as this finalizes his his place in the world of the of the strange. Fawcett um, sends final dispatch before you know at the last possible place where he can still get you know um, runners, people who will who will take these out of the jungle and out to the nearest settlements. And he notes in one of his final articles, by the time this dispatch is printed, we shall have long since disappeared into the unknown. And he may have meant this or he may have not, but there is a chapter in The Lost World called Tomorrow We Disappear Into the Unknown. I have nothing further to say about that. A lot of people go missing in the following decades looking for Fawcett, many of whom have fascinating adventures in and of their own right, but it's getting late and I really don't have time to say too much about it. Um, I will briefly mention in 1937, 
we have a woman named Martha L. Moenick, an American missionary, and she comes across a a person in the jungle who has a young boy with pale skin and bright blue eyes. And um, she's told that he is the son of Jack Fawcett, who had fathered him with an Indian woman. In his dual nature, there are conspicuous traits of British reserve and of a military bearing. While on his Indian side, the sight of a bow and arrow or a river made him a little jungle boy. So kind of shades of Tarzan here, as well as the, the tr- traditional, um, you know, lost white tribe kind of shtick. Um, interestingly about, I mean, Tarzan really is basically a story where, you know, uh, a white dude gets put into the jungle and get, wouldn't you know he's better at being in the jungle than any of the any of the locals this this young boy his name is uh dulipe he's he's found later and um the newspapers go so far as to call him the white god of the zingu so there hitting that tarzan note once again it is eventually shown that he is in fact uh, an albino and this is quite common if you've ever read about uh, richard marsh in 1924 and um, another explorer who goes into panama this time because there are stories about uh quote-unquote white indians um, and he brings back three young people who he takes around America and gets shown to museums and again they're albinos so it's funny how none of these explorers ever think like huh there's like three of these white people living amongst you know non-white South Americans you know and and, and they would like therefore conclude they are a tribe you know of all, all white and I think one of the final stories I want to tell here about the the decades following Fawcett's disappearance is that uh, is, is kind of what happens to his wife Nina who for a very long time after this continues to hope and believe that he will he will come back right up until the point when he would have been in his 80s um, in 1949 she consults a, a psychic by the name of Geraldine Commons who is from Cork or was from Cork and has been on this show before I think we had an episode a very long time ago called the Cork Psychic so check that out for more on Geraldine Commons. Um, a celebrated practitioner, quote, of automatism, where auto, automatism, whereby a person purportedly goes into a trance and writes down messages from spirits and described how Jack and Raleigh were massacred by Indians. Now Fawcett's younger son, Brian Fawcett, who, if I recall correctly, was basically sent off to Peru to work in a railway company at the age of, I think, 17, um, just before Fawcett and his brother went off on their final expedition, he had always been the kind of the neglected brother, the one who was never as good as Jack, the one who was never going to be picked to be on, to be on the expeditions, and spent the rest of his life really writing about his father. He collected the papers and published them as Exploration Fawcett, which was a big hit in the 1950s. And he went to the jungle himself, looking for evidence of his father or any evidence he could see of the lost city of Zed. And upon go- going there years later and seeing, you know, flying around the jungle and not seeing any evidence of this, um, he starts to kind of lose his belief that his father really was onto something. Um, Gran writes, Originally, Fawcett had described Zed in strictly scientific terms. But by 1924, Fawcett had filled his papers with reams of delirious writings about the end of the world and about a mystical Atlantean kingdom which resembled the Garden of Eden. Zed was transformed into the cradle of all civilizations. There's that uh, hyperdiffusionism again. And the centre of one of Blavatsky's white lodges. 
where a group of higher spiritual beings helped to direct the fate of the universe. Foss had hoped to discover a white lodge that had been there since the time of Atlantis and attain transcendence. Folks have continued to pick up ideas like this or interpretations like this of Fawcett over the years. There was a group called the Magical Nucleus and uh, uh, led by a fellow called the High Priest of the Roncador um, uh, in the 70s, Gran writes, scores of Brazilians and Europeans, including Fawcett's own great-nephew, flocked to join the Magical Nucleus, hoping to find the portal where basically Fawcett had gone into this portal and descended into the Hollow Earth. We have an episode about the Hollow Earth as well, so by all means, um, check that out. And then finally, Gran mentions a 2005-era website called The Great Web of Percy Harrison Fawcett. And I remember this because... Uh, this is like the, I think probably the first time I got interested, reinterested in Percy Fawcett, and you know thought enough about him to look him up on the internet, which was not a new thing, but still kind of novel in some ways. Um, uh, for an, and he taught this guy who that that website was a hoot. I remember it was nuts. Uh, it talks about how they were going to go on, the people who made the website were going to go and find the portal or doorway to a kingdom that was entered by Colonel Fawcett in 1925. Gran writes, This trek, which has yet to take place, will include psychic guides and is built as an expedition of no return in the ethereal place of the unbelief. It promises participants they will be no longer humans, but beings from another dimension, which means that we shall never die, we shall never get sick, and we shall never grow up. Just as the world's blank spaces were disappearing, these people had constructed their own permanent dreamscape. Grant finishes the book by talking about uh, then-contemporary discoveries in the Amazon, talking about how, indeed, there may well have been um, larger numbers of people living there, and uh, there's evidence of agriculture, there's evidence of large settlements, stuff like that, and he kind of goes to say that perhaps, considered in a particular way, Fawcett really might have been onto something with his last city of Zed. And so I'm going to leave it there. Next episode, we're going to find out, did he really only come to the spiritual bizarre stuff later in life? And indeed, are there any other weird little episodes in his um, exploring days that we didn't learn about? And uh, how bloody jealous was poor Brian Fawcett really about all this stuff that he missed out on? So next episode is going to be Exploration Fawcett, Journey to the Lost City of Zed, Mostly notes written by Colonel Percy Fawcett, organized by his son, Brian, and published in 1953. My name is Kian. This is Wide Atlantic Weird. You can find me online where I'm occasionally active. Over on Twitter, I am still at Strange Ireland, but on Instagram, I am now Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude, at least for now. So folks, until next time, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.